these folks are already giving back. And anytime you give them a call saying, hey, could you talk to this student or this alum? They need a little bit of guidance. So we're starting to build that ecosystem of self-support and start that flywheel running. And so as you do that, you start getting additional people to support. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am Jeffrey Stern, your resident cartographer here, and today our mapping exercise has landed us at Case Western Reserve University, where we will be speaking with Bob Sopko. So Bob is a true wealth of information about Cleveland startup scene and is a, a genuine champion of it as well. We'll cover the, the full breadth of his background in our conversation, but I'll call out that his experience may make him one of the best guides to have on to understand the full range and depth of entrepreneurial activity happening around Cleveland. Bob is an entrepreneur in residence at Youngstown Business Incubator and is the head of Case Western's LaunchNet, which is a joint project between the Burden D. Morgan Foundation, Blackstone, and Case Western to train the next generation of entrepreneurs who have since gone on to build a range of companies here in Cleveland, raising millions of dollars in the process. I learned a great deal from Bob in our conversation, and I hope you all enjoy it. So when I moved to Cleveland and started attending startup-oriented activities around the city, I'm pretty sure that I saw you at every single event. <laughs> and so of all the people that I've been able to talk to on the show so far, my sense is that you may be the best person to kind of survey the Cleveland startup space, uh, which is why I've, I'm excited to have this conversation. So thank you for coming on. That's that's great. And um, yeah, I'm, I get out a lot. Um, my kids are older. When I was like in my 20s, I, I was home a lot or working, but uh, but now that's kind of kind of my thing. <laughs> <laughs> so before we just dive into, you know, what what is actually going on in the space and, and the work that you're doing, I'd love if you could share a bit more about your own professional background leading up to all the work that you're doing as director of LaunchNet at Case Western, and really what got you interested in the entrepreneurial space in the first place? Sure, sure. I mean, I'll go way back in terms of uh, as a young person, I was you know, cutting grass and also went around to the neighborhood. Back in the day, you could like collect newspapers and load them in a truck and then get money for recycling them. And I took one of my... Um, my customer's garage, it was an older gentleman who didn't have a car. And I said, hey, can I use your garage to load these newspapers? Because my garage is full. <laughs> and my dad and I didn't have a chance to, to drag them out yet. And then his son found out and his son was really not happy. And he said, you know, this could be a fire here. I said, well, we're cautious here. My dad's a fireman. Not that not that it matters. But anyways, I, I did that back in the day and kind of got in trouble. And But I did ask permission. So that was the start of it. And then my professional career... I started working in a drugstore to pay for part of college, and I worked through the through my uh, college years in the drugstore part-time, and then uh, going to school part-time, and then full-time. And then uh, when it came time for me to graduate, I asked one of the VPs who came in to visit if uh, they were interviewing in the office for anything. He said no. And Ten minutes later, he came back and said, you know what, why don't you come up and interview? And then I was there, uh, that drugstore chain, for a total of 18 and a half years through a leveraged buyout, a bankruptcy, and then an IPO. So like we did the alphabet soup of financial <laughs> craziness, uh, not 
something I would choose to do. But boy, even though we were a large multi-billion dollar company, we really, really, really had to act small and aggressive. And then from there, I went to a Bain Capital funded startup. I wanted to work on something called the internet back in the day. I had a nice- I haven't heard of it. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) I had a nice severance package. We did a public offering. I had stock options. So I had a little bit of time. I didn't have the FU money, but I had enough to take a little bit of time. And they were paying me for multiple months after that uh, as part of the separation. And so we built a bunch of um, high-tech career fairs, some in Silicon Valley, which was really cool, Seattle, Texas, and we had our S1 document ready to go public when people were just absolutely stupid during the dot-com, dot-bomb era. And we actually had, I think, 14 acquisitions ready to go with the proceeds from the public offering. And then the dot-bomb hit and everything kind of went down. So we ended up selling to the Washington Post and Chicago Tribune. Then I went over to Overdrive for a short period of time. Um, My buddy who was running finance at the previous company was over there helping with finance. And uh, I was doing some sales with them. Steve Potash, Laurie, the group, just wonderful, wonderful people. But they they were having their struggles. And um, I also had a situation where my oldest was ready to go to college. And I found out that Case was hiring. And um, one of the benefits is free tuition. And it's like, well, that's that's a pretty good benefit. <laughs> um, and so uh, I ended up getting a job there working in IT for a very, very, very uh, innovative guy named Lev Gonick. He also did one community in town here, and he's now the CIO over at Arizona State University and a friend. So um, it was really fun working with them. Get there, and and I was doing something something called strategic technology partnerships. While I was working with a lot of the technical folks, um, I was also putting some disciplines in and some other elements for bringing strategic partnerships in into the university. And one of them that we did, we were one of the first ten that used Google as our back end for Gmail and also for uh, the Google Suite. And actually, Paul Buhite is a case grad number 23 at Google. He helped coin the phrase, don't be evil. And he is the person who wrote Gmail. So uh, that was that was really cool. And from there, we continued doing that. And I was also helping a couple students with their business ideas along the way. A couple of those were um, Alex, Ari, and Oleg that ended up doing something called Onesis, which is online pizza ordering. And they ended up having a nice exit a few years after a a friend of mine, Lee Zappas, actually reached out to me when I left the startup, the Bain Capital Funded Startup. And uh, I got to know him. And anyways, when these guys were looking for funding, reached out to Lee and Lee put in a half a million dollars and and they grew the business and uh, had had a nice exit to Living Social. From there, I, again, wanted to go and and do some other things. And uh, Chase had this opportunity and did that strategic technology partnerships. So what we did um, along the way is um, my friend who kind of had a, a sidestep there before I went over the case is a friend of mine, uh, who, who Ray, who was at OneJobs.com with me. He had an idea for a new TLD, top-level domain, like .com, like .edu. It's called .jobs. From my, my time at the drugstore chain, I ended up engaging with Tom Ambrosia, he runs something called Second Generation. I went with, because I had known him, Ray was looking for some financing, and we went into Tom, 
And he very, very quickly understood that this was a licensing opportunity. He didn't understand ICANN and those structures, so we put it under the auspices of the FCC uh, because he, he knew the radio space and you had to be licensed to have a radio stations. And we said that, well, this is the uh, ICANN is like the FCC and they basically license you the top level domain and then you become like the FCC and then you decide who can buy it. And so he very, very quickly, we met with him on a Thursday or Friday. And by Monday, he talked to his family and, and said, you know, he's in. And then Ray went and worked with them, leaving Overdrive. And, and I helped out you know, over the years and still kind of helped them out today. And it's, it's an international top-level domain. And since then, they've now worked on Dot Realtor with the National Association of Realtors and Dot Real Estate. So that's all born in Cleveland. So that's a, that's a really, you know, cool thing to have here. Getting back to Case, so I was at Case in IT. There was a gentleman from Jumpstart who said that, you know, would I help out beyond working at Case in the IT community at Jumpstart and Youngstown Business Incubator? And I said, well, let me just kind of, you know, check back at Case, make sure this is cool with them. Quickly, they said, yeah, this, this would be, you know, a nice way to help the community and, and help our students also to, buy, to getting them integrated into the community internships, that type of activity. So I, I've been doing that for about eight years now. And in the meantime, a Blackstone out of New York had decided to start funding entrepreneur activities at universities. We had answered an RFP along with Kent State, Lorraine County Community College, and Baldwin-Wallace. And so we have something called LaunchNet, and we continue to run those. And, and I basically applied for the position and, and ran it. And since then, we've just added uh, John Carroll about a year ago. So that brings us up kind of to today. And what else can I answer for you now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so you, you, have not, you have not been busy at all over the yeah. past few years. <laughs> no, thank you for, for sharing all of that. That's incredibly interesting. I'd love to kind of talk a bit more about LaunchNet. You know, at the, at the onset from Blackstone's funding of it, you know, funding of entrepreneurial activity, w- what does that actually mean? Like what? What are some of the projects, uh, goals, initiatives that are that are happening at LaunchNet? During the time Blackstone funded us, we were also funded by Case Western and also substantially funded by the Burton D. Morgan Foundation, which does a lot for the ecosystem in this area. And so, within Blackstone, they were definitely looking for you know how much financing did you raise, how many jobs did you create, and they were looking at those type of metrics, which is fine. The Burton D. Morgan Foundation was interested in that somewhat, but they were more interested in how are you impacting individual students or alum to have an entrepreneurial mindset? You know, if they try something and it doesn't work out, what on the other side of that have they learned? You know, can they go and work with another organization to help them out? Or can they go work for Goodyear, maybe in their innovation sector, to help, you know, move them along because you have to be innovative. And, you know, what we're living through today is, you know, if you're not innovative, you're gone. It's, it's you know, sure. it's, it's over. So that's what we did. And over time, uh, Blackstone from the beginning said they're going to reduce their funding, which was fine. And they, they reduced it to a point where saying, you know what, for that amount of money, and we, we feel collectively with all these uh, other universities, we can do this on our own. And, and each of the universities put in a little bit more money, and, the, and uh, the Burton D. Morgan picked up the rest of the money that Blackstone was funding and said, you know, let's, let's be independent of this because there's a little bit of overhead there that we don't 
need to deal with. And we could be more agile of working together, you know, on our own. So that kind of brought us up to, you know, what we're doing today. Right. And so you, you had mentioned just kind of in your own professional past, working with students on their own startup endeavors and initiatives through LaunchNet, though, you know, what are the kind of outcomes that you've experienced in that 20 years from now that you hope you can see and, and the kind of impact that that LaunchNet can have? Even before LaunchNet, I was very, very fortunate as part of Jumpstart. It was kind of like the training wheels to do what LaunchNet was doing. I was fortunate. I met Gordon Daly, a case grad, when he was still at Rockwell. And him and others were working on a technology to stream video. That became BoxCast. And from there, you know, helping him align with that, I had some friends, Toby and Melanie Maloney, who helped some students from Duke back in the day, do something called Mental Floss Magazine, and they had an exit, and they were looking for other things to do. And I highly suggested that they talk to Gordon from a standpoint of just both sets are good people, and Gordon has got some good ideas going forward. And, you know, just recently, Gordon, he had raised substantial millions of dollars before, and he just raised an additional $20 million. And also the markets he serves, churches, and also um, NCAA, when you can do NCAA sports, <laughs> it's very important. Uh, he's got a very simple and elegant solution that he worked very, very hard at, along with his team, to make simple and elegant. And he also had you know, help from VFA, Venture for America group, you know, before even 20 years. Um, I think that was an absolutely stunning outcome. And one great thing about Gordon, along with other ones like John Niffick, who did something called Citizen Groove, which became Decision Desk, and now he's working on something called uh, Wiser. These folks are already giving back. And anytime you give them a call saying, hey, could you talk to this student or this alum? They need a little bit of guidance. So we're starting to build that ecosystem of self-support and start that flywheel running. And so as you do that, you start getting additional people to support. You know, when the first uh, student I worked with, Every Key, that did a Kickstarter, we didn't know what the heck we were doing. Then, you know, since then, we have had other people who did Kickstarters and who they talked to, Chris from Every Key. So again, starting to, you know, basically replicate the knowledge base outside of just myself and other entities at Case or other entities at Jumpstart and Youngstown Business Incubator so that it becomes part of the DNA, you know, across, you know, Northeast Ohio, across Ohio. So that's kind of part of, you know, what we'd like to see 20 years from now. But, you know, we're already getting some, you know, good gains, you know, from that. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. The the whole idea of the flywheel and the support system that's kind of baked into that I'd be really interested in your perspective on more more at a macro level, speaking to kind of the flywheel idea. In your mind, what is the role of a university in a city startup ecosystem? And I have a few other questions we can dive into after that, but I think we can just start there. Absolutely. So it depends on the university and their appetite to be involved in the ecosystem for entrepreneurship. Some of them, because of just their charter and, you know, let's say, um, you know, Cleveland Institute of Art, a little bit of that. Cleveland Institute of Music, not a lot. They're training, you know, professional musicians. And other liberal arts schools, you know, maybe not as strong. But Case has made a, a determination that, you know, we want to be a provider of 
uh, resources for not just our students and our alumni, but the overall ecosystem. So one of the biggest things they can do is provide talent. Talent for students to have the opportunity to experiment and try and I guess you could call it fail, but I'll, let's call it learn at a, a young age when the stakes maybe aren't as high because they don't have a mortgage to pay. Uh, they don't have kids to support and they can you know maybe make some mistakes early on. The other thing is, you know, providing internships for possibly startups or other nimble companies out there. During COVID, we were super fortunate. Uh, my colleague, Michael Goldberg, who runs the, the Veal Center for Entrepreneurship, he funded multiple internships at a $500 stipend. And we had over 150 projects from various local and actually some national companies that had some alum attached to them. And over 200 students apply for these. We matched well over 100 and he kept finding more money and, and supporting this so that these students could basically get embedded into the remote entrepreneurship program, REP, so that they can help these companies as they're needing this help during these COVID times when they're struggling with, you know, reduced income streams, uh, you know, having trouble finding somebody capable to maybe do some market analysis for them, to do some coding for them, or some doing some other materials that, you know, that was part of our give back to the community, but also part of our, you know, responsibility to these students who trusted us to have an engaging experience for them at the university and trying our best to be creative and create something there. So that was really kind of like one that just recently happened. The other thing is um, Thinkbox, thirty-five, forty million dollars, depending on how you count it. Fifty thousand square foot innovation space, open to the public. When we t tell people that, it's just it's crazy. And now I think sixty-two percent of our students mention Thinkbox as one of the reasons they came the case, raising from thirty-four a couple years ago. And, and so you know, having that type of space that you can come in and three D print, no charge except for material laser cut. You could come up on the sixth or seventh floor and have a co-working space, no charge to you, high-speed internet, a place that you could learn from others, that you could basically, you know, kind of work out of, you know, occasionally. That's another element that, you know, we want to be there to supply that. And also, put, you know, potentially bump into other people. You know, one of the stories I'll say, and it didn't necessarily happen, but, you know, you've got theoretical physicists there who, who, you know, maybe have some idea of um, mapping out or making a 3D model of some type of a graph, but don't know how to 3D print. But we could have a kid from middle school who knows how to 3D print because he's making fidget widget spinners that could teach a theoretical physicist how to 3D print. Uh, we did have that kid making fidget widgets, you know, spinners and selling them. We encourage it. We want that to happen. The two of them never met, but Theoretically, they could. Or that nurse that has been, you know, in the uh, field for, let's say, 15, 20 years and maybe has some idea for some implement that can make her patient care better or, you know, less burdensome. You know, how can we integrate her and welcome her in or him in so that we can work with uh, maybe a Cleveland Institute of Art student to help design, industrial design student design something and having an engineering student help them, you know, make something and start to prototype and enter a competition and, and, and bring something to market. Yeah. One of the threads I'll, I'll pull on there is the, is the talent one. 
you know, both in terms of graduates working on their own specific startups or entrepreneurial efforts, you also have this issue of retaining talent uh, to, to work in the other startups that people are are starting or other, you know, scale ups that are, you know, the box casts of Cleveland that now have this capital and are looking to grow and, and deploy it. So what, one of the, I think, real challenges that Cleveland faces is one of the brain drain where you have, you know, someone who born and raised here in Cleveland attends case graduates, and then all of a sudden they're thinking about where they're going to start their professional journey and are being recruited heavily, you know, by the firms out in New York and in San Francisco. So I'm, you know, curious how you think about the brain drain problem, the the post-graduation student retention problem, and and what are some things that we can do better here in Cleveland to to, to address that? Okay. Um, the brain drain, it's talked about, I think, too much, and it's unfortunate. A lot of communities have that, and, uh, you know, I don't want to be the next Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley is an anomaly. It's just an anomaly worldwide. It's, you know, you look at a chart, and they just stick up really weirdly. Um, compare ourselves to Kansas City, compare ourselves to, you know, other places, Cincinnati, Columbus is doing, I'd say, a little bit better than us. Pittsburgh with CMUs and Google and others are, are doing a little bit better than us. But we can, we've got some really strong elements here. And I'm going to flip it around the other way, too. My son-in-law came, comes from Chautauqua, New York. And in Chautauqua, New York, 64 kids graduated from the high school. Anybody who went to college, zero, zero stuck around. That's a problem. That's a drain. And when he looks at Cleveland, he goes, I see nothing but opportunity here. His brother then followed him. And now his mom and his stepfather are going to be coming to Cleveland because they see, you know, the Cleveland Clinic. They see, you know, other elements here. Uh, My son-in-law worked for Smuckers, TTI, which is Hoover and Dirt Devil, and also now he's at uh, Goodyear. And you just don't have that in these other places. So I've seen him come in from here. And also people who have grown up maybe Western PA, Western New York, and maybe don't want to travel to a Chicago or New York City or all the way to the West Coast. This is prime opportunity. Or they've traveled there and 10 years later, they are saying, you know what, I really, really want to buy a house, but I cannot buy one in San Francisco. Or my parents are getting older or my grandparents are getting older and I really want to be around family. So that, you know, that is, you know, one of the elements. The other one is, um, you know, like like we were talking before about this internship program, make sure that these um, students know what, while they're in school that these box casts of the world, these uh, wisers of the world, overdrives of the world, you know, exist here. Uh, have them try to, um, you know, get a position there, you know, places that you are with Actual and um, Explorers, which become came IBM Watson Health, you know, phenomenal opportunities there. Or, you know, make your own job or or partner up with the student. Those are, you know, ways to, you know, retain people here. But if they don't want to stay here, and we actually interviewed a number of people from our hacker society, why do we lose you to other places? And they said, and this is, again, pre-COVID and everything else, and things were like booming along. Well, you know, we're young and we want to really try out on the West Coast. And it's just like, and there's nothing here you can do to stop us. And I go, okay, so we will try the best we can, but 
while you're out there, can we at least engage with you, meet with you, talk with you so that we have a beachhead out there so that when other students may internship out there or go out there, and we, we have quite a few alum out there, let's establish relationships with them. Let's work with Plug and Play, which is in 30 some cities now across the world, two in Beijing. And Plug and Play Cleveland is their vertical for healthcare. So, you know, how do we then not fight it, but, you know, as uh, Tim Ryan and, and uh, Scott Shane have worked um, valley to valley, Mahoning Valley to Silicon Valley, having the congressmen working together and continue to, you know, maybe go out there and get some financing, but bring some operations back here to build it. You've got a very short runway in these expensive places. You can go four times further here than you can go out there. And you can be maybe a little bit more relaxed on it. There's a lot of walking dead in these other ones that you're four months away from shutting the door. And it'd be much nicer to have like a year and a half runway instead of four months. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to take us on a little bit of a detour. Uh, You mentioned Youngstown Business Incubator at the beginning of our conversation, uh, brought up Congressman Ryan. So, you know, about two years ago, I actually had the the pleasure of making the drive over to Youngstown to spend a few days for that Valley to Valley. So we were there. We were there as with Jim Costler and Barb Ewing and the rest of the YBI team, as well as folks like Congressman Ryan and and other entrepreneurs and, and VCs in the area. And we were there to talk about how to, you know, attract and incentivize larger technology companies even to potentially relocate to Youngstown. But we also got to see this showcase of really amazing companies uh, that people are building their, you know, heavy focus on advanced manufacturing and industrial 3D printing, but really spanning the whole spectrum, VR, video games, consumer products. And so I, you know, I would just want to ask you as an entrepreneur in residence there, what what's going on? <laughs> well, you had mentioned some of it. The additive manufacturing is just phenomenal. You know, we lead, you know, that that is the the hub for the entire country. We just had some people come from who grew up in the area coming back to Cleveland to do an like an industrial strength printer that could be out in the field because we know how to build stuff here. We know how to build stuff very, very well. And we'll go I'll go toe-to-toe with anywhere else in the country, if not the world. Because we can build things, we know how to make things very, very well here. So that's one of the elements coming out of YBI, moving that forward. Bright.org, also the energy sector near Youngstown is also pushing. And as you know, Lordstown Motors, yeah, we had we had a problem with GM, but now Lordstown Motors, publicly traded company, again, that is, they already have a, an order for over 100,000 of these pickup trucks and that was on in front of the White House uh, a couple of weeks ago. And also the LG battery factory will be growing up there. But other things at, at Youngstown is just in the IT sector. There's a group that is helping students manage their debt, their college debt, through a very unique methodology through an affiliate model. And they were out on the West Coast, but they're opening a facility here to help them move along. There's another one called Fritz Frames. And they're getting traction. Uh, Fritz Frames allows you to go online and not only like uh, Parker Warbly, uh, you know, order your glasses, but design your glasses and then have them 3D print in the color you'd like for specifically you. And they're starting to get some traction. So the founder is on the West Coast. The operations elements 
are in Youngstown. So working very closely with them and kind of moving it to the next level and they're, they're, they're gaining some traction out there. So, you know, part of it is additive manufacturing, yes, but, you know, some of it is in the other, um, you know, tech sectors. Building on that a bit, in the past four and a half years that I've been here in in the startup space, I think if I didn't have that opportunity to go to Youngstown, I probably would not have been aware of any of the stuff going on there. And so from your perspective, how do we better incorporate, commingle the startup ecosystems of Cleveland and adjacent places like Youngstown, where there really is a lot of complementary stuff going on, but, you know, also places like Akron um, and, you know, how do we create a more unified body here? Well, one of the ways we did it was through Generator, Jenner and the the number eight tour, which does uh, an accelerator. They did one in Youngstown and then they also have been doing them in Cleveland. So, um, Scott Shane had worked to bring, you know, some of these outside resources to bear here. And one thing, every two months we have a, a meeting that we bring in people from Youngstown, from Akron, from Magnet, from Lorain County Community College. And we we, we share, it's a, called a, an ESP meeting that we kind of share, you know, what we're doing, where, where we could use help, what interesting entrepreneurs are moving forward, and, you know, how to align that together. In addition to that, at least from Akron to Cleveland, there's something called uh, National Science Foundation ICOR. And ICOR is like Steve Blank's business model canvas for market validation. So a number of us from Case as students and entrepreneurs and also as mentors being uh, staff or professors have volunteered to help guide these folks uh, down in Akron. And, you know, we would have a, a fair number of Case students involved, but now we're we're doing it in conjunction with them that some of the sessions will be at Case, some of the sessions will be at Akron. So to kind of like bridge that gap more, we're, we're continuing to do that. And also the people from, you know, Youngstown are more embedded in the community more. Heather, who also does what I do more full-time than what I do as an entrepreneur in residence, makes her way around this area. She goes down to Bounce, uh, for regular meetings. And so she literally is in Cleveland, Akron, Youngstown, Cleveland, Akron, Youngstown, potentially, you know, the same week to kind of bring and tie everything together and pull all those resources so that, you know, everybody knows what the other is doing and, and see how we can collectively work together. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it would be very cool the more we can kind of bring bring all that stuff together, just make people aware of, of what's going on <laughs> adjacent to us. Yeah, and just you know, to give you an example, there was uh, it's called BeNeverEnding.com. Case grad, you know, worked at Case, and he did a Kickstarter, raised seventeen thousand four hundred dollars for being able to generate uh, characters. Well, he also competed in a competition in Youngstown and won it. And he was featured on Spectrum Cable Network, you know, as being a winner there. But again, he's he lives in the Cleveland area, engaged with Case, but went out to Youngstown to compete uh, because he had heard of uh, what was going on out there and uh, ended up, you know, winning it. And we've had other ones, uh, Augment Therapy. She was also a winner out in the Youngstown area, taking advantage of, you know, some of their resources of, you know, what can be had out there. Hmm. So with a lot of these efforts that that students are working on to 
to start something, uh, whether through LaunchNet or, or elsewise. Something that I've always just been curious about and I just honestly don't have a great understanding of is the other part of startups and universities, which is maybe more the corporate engagement and tech commercialization aspect of you know actual research that's being done at case or wherever and you know that being spun out and and maybe run with by students or licensed and sold elsewhere but but I'd love if you could speak a bit to how universities case specifically is you know monetizing on startups absolutely uh, so um, people initially were very concerned it's like oh if I make something in thinkbox does the university own part of it no you know if it's your idea you own it you, you have it, that's not a problem. The issue becomes if it's, you know, coming out of a lab that, you know, a professor is teaching and it's maybe funded by a corporation or something like that. Yeah, there are some rights to that that the university has because they're paying for it. And also maybe a corporation has that. Within LaunchNet, we generally only deal with student and alumni ideas that are 100% owned by them. We will occasionally, because of some of our connections and expertise, tap into some of the other ones because of we're kind of like hanging out in the same place or we've gone to i together with them. And I'll give you two examples. One is um, Roadprints, P-R-I-N-T-Z.com, which was a case professor in robotics. And it's to basically have a robot on the back of a truck to print road markings. So it's a case-owned technology, but they licensed it to him. And so he's going to market with that. And the case technology transfer office negotiated that with them to give him incentive to do that and to move forward with that. Another one is Folio, and they also went through I-Core. Uh, Folio Photonics is another one, which is a high-density material to fit minimally 100 times more on a, a DVD of data than that can currently be done. Again, a, a case technology born in a lab, and then the professor now owns a portion of it. And they hired a boomerang who grew up in the Cleveland area, was out with, with Intel, I believe, for almost two decades, and now is back in Cleveland. His in-laws are very involved with, um, I believe, Aladdin's and Yours Truly restaurants. And now they're building that technology in Cleveland. They've got a team here, and they're continuing to move forward. But Case definitely you know, has partial ownership of that, but they're also smart that they want to incentivize the management group saying, you know, you make this work, and it will be advantageous for you, and then also incentivize the employees of that and the hires, the interns from Case or the interns from other universities or the, the new hires of Case grads or Cleveland State grads or, you know, possibly, you know, Polymer grads out of University of Akron to say, okay, we want to incentivize you and give you some equity to bring this out going forward. See, we, we kiss a lot of frogs with what we're doing with the student ideas and, you know, very few are going to become a prince, and, but there's a lot of them. The ones that cases, they're a little bit more mature and have, have kind of been tested a little bit more prudently before they kind of move it to the next level. And a fair number of those are also deep, deep science with, you know, something in the medical area that just needs a lot of work, a lot of money behind it, and a lot of testing before you can go to the next level. Do you feel that entrepreneurship can be taught? Yes. 
I, I feel some of the fundamentals, but I think it can be better lived than taught in apprenticed. You can be taught in the classroom how to ski, but until you go down the slope, <laughs> you can look at a book to play the piano, right? But until you get in front of a keyboard. So I think it will help you with the fundamentals, understanding you know market dynamics, understanding that you really should understand, you know, is there a market for this? How do I put it together? How do I structure this? LLC, C Corp, B Corp, so on and so forth. So those components can be taught, but then you have to get out there and do it. I'm also going to model this a little bit off of um, Y Combinator, which is the most dollar-wise successful accelerator in the world, that they did something called startupschool.org. I've gone through it three times. And what do they emphasize? Very early, market validation, who's on your team, how can you get forward? I don't care if it's not perfect, try it. So uh, I've seen it happen, and I've seen it happen on a regular basis. I've seen um, one of the professors from Case very nervous about getting out of the lab and talking to potential customers. Extremely nervous, very smart person, but out of their element. But then over time, they started to understand it more. And then they started to enjoy it, saying, I'm learning because I did it. But the, the initial part was very difficult. And unless you taught this person how to do it, they wouldn't have done it. I, w- I want to say something about startup school because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. And to, to give you a, a, an idea of the, the reach and also the density of some of the entrepreneurship in Cleveland, in fall of 2019, I was in it for the third time in I was doing an analysis in, I was promoting the heck out of it as Jumpstart was and others to get people involved. We had quite a few students involved with it. But within a 50 kilometer reach of Cleveland, we had 60 companies, 60 companies, not just case people, not just Akron, you know, but but 60 companies, people who had ideas. And it's like, shit, we didn't even know they existed, some of them. Other <laughs> ones, they were, they were kind of people that we knew of. You know, one of them was like, uh, road prints, and they went through it again because they wanted to learn, and they applied for YC. And so we actually had a mixer at Thinkbox, and 24 of them showed up, which was a heck of a percentage. And then there was that helping of each other, you know, what are you working on? How can we help you? Again, building out that ecosystem, and, you know, a lot of people needed help. They had good technical ideas. It's like, how do I market this? So the marketing person was actually quite busy. The other person who was actually quite busy is, you know, I have this idea. I need somebody to code this thing. And that's, you know, always, you know, a difficult thing, no matter where you're at, uh, to get, you know, some, some, some good uh, developers to work on something. But I just wanted to share that. I was shocked when I rolled up the numbers and I said, okay, we got 20, we got, you know, we got 30, we got 40. It's like, oh my gosh, we got 60. And that was just an amazing number that we had. Yeah, that is pretty extraordinary. What Paul Graham's done with Y Combinator is is pretty cool, and yes, even just uh, his like observations on Pittsburgh and and Carnegie Mellon, and, and probably the equivalent role that Case plays here in Cleveland as kind of a an anchor institution, attracting the talent. You know, people hear about Thanksbox, and it's how you kind of build the flywheel. So. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I, I read uh, his, his article and, um, you know, having the, uh, the foodie and, and that, that density, having a place to hang out is very, very, very important. And um, those accidental collisions. I know that the Cleveland Foundation is trying to build out, you know, another entity in, in, in the area. And then 
Bernie Marino and Joe Penny are looking at the downtown area with um, with uh, Gilbert's group, um, City Black, because there's something to be said about that type of collective discussions. Um, I was very, very fortunate. I traveled in China, and the one place during the day was a co-working space. At night, it was a bar with the musicians in it. That is cool, and that is what you want, <laughs> and that's what you need to have. And it's it's shown time and time again. Research Triangle, which is a great place, very uh, smart people down there. One of the problems they had is that they were very spread out and distanced from each other. They needed some place where people could collaborate and collect together. Uh, and when you have that, really cool things can you know start to happen. And as Paul had mentioned in that too, is that you know sometimes universities have to just get the hell out of the way too, right? Lay out the buffet, but don't tell people how to eat. And you, you need to mix the Cleveland Institute of Art creatives with the physicists with the mathematicians and you you need to bring these folks together because very very cool things can happen now hmm. yeah so we, i mean we've covered uh, a lot of ground here <laughs> in terms of you know projects that you've seen and uh, been involved with and and help support you know from your seat at, at case what are the things that are happening right now that you are most excited about one thing is we just finished our eighth year at CES. We have the largest footprint of any university there. In the past, MIT has been there. In the past, Notre Dame out of Indiana has been there. Michigan, South Korea has two displays, one with eight and one with nine booths. And we had like 14 booths. So yeah, collectively they beat us, but individually they didn't. So <laughs> not that I'm competitive. So that was really great. We've raised over, I, I believe our number is about $340,000 that we can clearly identify from being there. And that was because we ran into some uh, scouts for VC firms. Uh, the other thing is it helps you stand out and do some market validation in front of people who are not, or who, who are going to tell you your baby is freaking ugly and um, also could potentially be a partner or a customer. And there's a camaraderie there also because you have a booth next to somebody else who put it all on the line and scraped together the money and is sleeping in a hostel somewhere and is trying to make something happen so, so you can hang out with that person and learn from that person. And it also gets us to showcase things like HoloLens, Hollow Anatomy. The first third-party app for HoloLens was made at Case Western, Hollow Anatomy. We crush it out there. People were standing in line to see that. Uh, kind of gets us a little bit on the map on an international scope. 170,000 people attended, 4,300 exhibitors. And we became a known entity, you know, by, by doing that. And we just finished that and we're starting to, you know, gain some elements from that. We ran into the FAA out there and they're looking to do uh, more in the drone space because there's a lot of laws and rules that have just literally changed this week. And they, they want more collegiate partners and, you know, they loved seeing us there. So that's, you know, one of the elements we're working on now. One of the things we showed there was um, a case student who's now working on his master's, along with a case alum from a couple years ago. They had an idea to 3D print a violin. And why? Because violins, small violins, are hard to come by. They're expensive and they are fragile. Uh, handing a violin to an 11-year-old or an 8-year-old 
can be dangerous and, you know, it could be, you know, heartbreaking for a family if they, you know, spend a fair amount of money and then a kid breaks it. Oh, that's just bad. That's just bad. So, you know, if we can 3D print these and, and he's, he's on like version, I think, 34 that he's been working on to get it acoustically solid, durable, yet something that somebody can can use. So, you know, that's that's one that we um, showed, you know, just literally this last week at CES. Another one, which was very cool, and he's been at CES multiple times with us, is a, a student who, it's called Reflexion, R-E-F-L-E-X-I-O-N.co. Some, <laughs> some students who went to high school together, one went to Penn State, one went to Cornell, your alma mater, and one went to Case. And what they're doing is neural exercises. It's kind of like whack-a-mole, but with LEDs. And he just signed. Oh. It's like, are you kidding me? They just signed Evan Holofield. I said, Evan Holofield? And they go, yes, son of Avander Holofield, who is a boxer. And so he's looking to use this for speed testing. So that is just really cool. And they've worked very hard. And what they announced at CES was they just got into Dick's Sporting Goods so that people who wanted um, basically in, wow. you know, increase their, their neural fitness can order it from Dick's. Those are, you know, just a couple samplings of, you know, what we're doing. You know, Road Prints, which I, I mentioned before, they're starting to get some traction out there. I can't think of any other ones off the top of my head. <laughs> That's all right. I think we've uh, covered uh, quite a lot here. And one thing just to kind of also give you, you know, an idea of, if you want to get into the financial metrics of it, we've raised about $34 million for these startups over the last like five or six years, which is a lot, but isn't a lot. That doesn't include the $20 million or any money BoxCast has raised. It doesn't include the, I don't know if it's $14 million or $18 million that Remesh has raised. And actually with Remesh, we when we opened ThinkBox, we were like their first test bed of, you know, eat your own dog food, Right. Uh, element. And so, you know, it felt good to do that. And it worked very well. But, you know, we we had to, you know, give that attempt out there. And that was Aaron, who was a Case PhD student, and also Andrew, who was a PhD student at Kent State. So again, we wanted to bridge those gaps and work together. There was a, a launch net at Kent State, and there was also uh, a launch net at Case. They knew each other before us. So we, we tried to help facilitate it even more after that. And also, you know, reaching down to Columbus. So we had um, something called Path-Robotics, two brothers who grew up in the area who were using a methodology to take in a visual input for a robot to do something smart. They, were, they wanted to do something that has market potential, and they chose welding. And so they built this company, and they very quickly received, well, not quickly, it was a couple years, but once they decided to go for more funding, they received some funding and um, drive capital out of Columbus, ended up raising over $10 million for them, and then convincing them, even though they didn't want to, to move to Columbus. And they also spoke at the um, coast-to-coast element up at uh, in Youngstown. They also spoke about, you know, their recruiting, and they, they had like 150 applicants for some of the engineers that they were looking to recruit. And it was, you know, very good for them. Another thing is uh, tying Columbus into Cleveland, there's Ohio Innovation Fund that invest in Ohio companies. They invested in a couple of Cleveland companies. So they're up here 
once or twice a month. And uh, they now have um, uh, somebody, Faith Voinovich, who's working with them. She was an Ohio University grad. She was, she's the granddaughter of the former mayor of Cleveland, George Voinovich, and the governor of the state, George Voinovich. And she's, you know, very integrated in the area. Her, her grandmother, I, I believe, still lives up here. And her aunts and uncles live up here. So, you know, again, going, you know, not just to Akron, but, you know, how can we reach to Columbus? And then let's go down to Cincinnati and look at Refinery, where Todd, who works with us at Veal Foundation, is working with Refinery down there. And then Tim, who is also the managing partner on there, is coming up here on a regular basis, grew up in the area, and also is there an investor in Folio Photonics, which I mentioned before. So it's not just the local area, but, you know, how we can do the state. And we just recently did something called Global Entrepreneurship Week, and we went from not just doing it in Cleveland, it's done all over the world, but we incorporated the whole state of Ohio and pulled those parties together to see, you know, how we can collectively as a state or a region, you know, support each other. Wow. So much going on. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I'm going to add one more. There's something called Global Entrepreneurship Network with Jeff Hoffman is like on their board. He's a driving force for that. He lives in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. He comes from Chicago. He was very instrumental in the start of Priceline. He's working very closely with Pitbull, whatever his real name is, out of Miami, the the musician, trying to help the Hispanic uh, community in a big way. Jeff's a friend. He's been very involved with mentoring our students, our alumni, on a regular basis. At the opening of Thinkbox, he came around, and there's something called GSV, GlobalSiliconValley.com. It also runs something called GSVBootcamp.com, which is going to be the second time next week. It's starting again. It's a seven-week program. Jeff will be speaking at it, and we're going to have you know a number of case and you know local folks. Um, I've been communicating out to our network to say you know can we get involved with this? And so you know not only in our own backyard, but you know let's look to the coast. Let's reach out to people. Let's reach out to people in China. Let's reach out to people in Europe. You know, how can we work together? We have a gentleman, uh, Renjun Bao, who moved to Cleveland for his master's and PhD from Cleveland State. He wrote for the largest Chinese newspaper, uh, sporting paper about the NBA. He lives in Cleveland. The Cleveland Cavaliers work very closely with them. He now works for Tencent. The, you know, one of the biggest media companies in the world, but he lives in Cleveland and he works on the NBA agreement out of Cleveland. So again, we've got that, that reach from not just here in this area, but you know, how can we also optimize those um, relationships you know, to help them and also to help us? Sure, sure. I feel like you've probably answered this question I'm about to ask maybe a hundred times over in this conversation. But uh, the, the question that I'm uniformly asking everyone as we try and paint a picture of of Cleveland and people's favorite things here is, you know, what is your favorite hidden gem? Well, they're not hidden in terms of Lake Erie, the parks, the zoo. We've got a really awesome zoo, just super well run. It's really interesting. Nothing against New York, but I, I hadn't spent time there. And when I always thought of, you know, like a theater district, I always pictured ours, right? Where the theater's next to each other. It's really cool. You can walk from one to the other. There's restaurants there. And I go to New York City. It's like, they're spread out all over the place. It's like, oh my gosh, it's not that density. That is so cool that we've got that density. And that was also on the Avengers, that, that was part of the, the scene. I don't know if you remember that or not, but you know, right along yeah, yeah. there, it's the scene. So that's 
cool. And, you know, the Russo brothers, they're, again, not a hidden gem, you know, and they, they come back on a regular basis and, and doing cool things here. The Midwestern, you know, we're here to help you. One of the things, um, you know, how can we also work together is I was on a panel with the Bernie Morgan Foundation, Deb Hoover, with i Akron, and with BioHio. And I showed a boat, like a black and white picture of a boat, pretty big boat that would maybe fit 10 people. And there was like five people in it. It was taking on water. It was like an old picture and people are bailing. And so I used that as an example saying, you know what, we better all work together or we're sunk. (laughs) And one of the elements is some of these other communities aren't forced to do it because they didn't go through hard times. So the adversity forced us to work together. And so let's take advantage of that. It taught us how to work together. And so, you know, continue to do that. And people in the audience literally were saying, I'm at this university. We are 15 minutes from this other university and we don't talk to each other. We hate each other because we hate each other on the field, the athletic field. We don't work with each other or we don't work with that community organization. That doesn't happen here very often. And the thing is, if it does then that entity or that person is usually kind of on the outs. So, you know, that's one of the beauties here that, you know, we loan each other, you know, a lawnmower, right? And we help each other. And the thing that we also do is that we're also very negative to each other and we're not prideful enough sometimes of what we can do here and what we can accomplish. But we really saying, oh, why would, it used to be, you know, people would move to Cleveland. It's like, why would you move to Cleveland? Instead of what? Instead of you know being welcoming, saying glad to have you here, come on down. You know more more people are moving here, so um, you know it's not rose-colored glasses. Everything there's a lot of things that have to be done, but there's other elements that we are just extremely powerful. We don't have a Theranos here. That's not going to happen. You know that was just an insanity. We know how to do medical, and you're going to have to work your tail off and prove yourself so much harder here, so that you know if you get some easy money you're really well prepared to to optimize it, right? And we've had, you know, great successes here. Overdrive, phenomenal success. They sold for $420 million to rank a two a Japanese company. Steve, Steve, he was an overnight success of 20 years, right? Or 18 years. Uh, right, really, right. really, really worked hard. And, and Charlie, you're working with, you know, great people uh, that they're doing. You know, they had one exit. Now they're working on something else. Bernie, the Embrushes, Zappos. Um, these people want to help out. And the other thing is, and we don't hear a lot about it, is we don't hear about all these industrial parks and all these other things that you would be shocked at that eight-person machine shop that is making something that is vital to an MRI machine or to a battleship or to, you know, a jet fighter that is made with such high precision that you can bet your life on it and you are betting your life on it. Swage lock is here. They don't want a lot of uh, notoriety. Jurgens is here, you know, turnbuckles and things that are holding bridges together, things that cannot fail are made here. And there's a there's a ton of it here. And, you know, you don't hear about it because people are going to work. They're getting it done. They're going home. They're going to play golf and they're having fun, right? Going to the Indians games, going to the Browns games. Um, but th- there's a lot of that here that are, are just hidden. And it, it's highly respected out there in other entities. Um, I know like when Cleveland Whiskey was um, thinking of doing other names, they analyzed it. And a lot of people across the country, across the world said Cleveland, 
gritty. They make things of quality, high quality. We respect them. Um, and they said, we're keeping a name. I'm glad they did. Yep. So there's a million things to follow up with you about here. And I'm sure that many people might have questions or, or follow-ups. What is the best way for people to contact you? Absolutely. So my name, B-O-B dot S-O-P as in Paul, K-O at case.edu. Perfect. Thank you, Bob, for, for coming on today. I, I really appreciate it. I definitely have learned uh, a ton from our conversation and it's very exciting to, to learn about everything that's going on. Absolutely. Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate what you're doing and uh, let's uh, keep doing this together. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So shoot us an email at layoftheland at upside.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland, at thetagan, or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please email us or find us on Twitter and let us know. And if you love our show, please leave a review on iTunes. That goes a long way in helping us spread the word and continue to help bring high quality guests to the show. Tegan Horton and Jeffrey Stern developed the Lay of the Land podcast in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Founders Get Funds and its affiliates or actual and its affiliates or any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment advice on this show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.